From the hills of central New York and in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. The autumn in the northern United States brings beautiful color to the landscape, a chance to recover from stressful summer, and a chance to sit down and watch the NFL on Sunday afternoon. Some of you might be interested in how these fields are managed, tested, and performed for elite athletes. We have another expert in the field, distinguished professor John Sorokin. John sat down with me recently to discuss the testing and research underway at Tennessee and what we are learning about the relationship between an athlete's footwear, safety, and performance, and what can be done from a management perspective to maximize safety and performance. John is a frequent guest on Frankly Speaking as a distinguished professor of turfgrass science at the University of Tennessee. He's a member of the NFL Field Certification Committee, hosting weekly research and technology conference calls with academics and industry leaders. And he has received the highest honor from the Sports Turf Managers Association of America for his outreach work in sports turf safety. As with all our Frankly Speaking episodes, we're grateful to our partners at Dryject and Intelligrow. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking, John. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. You have had such a wonderful career, the breadth of it, but more recently, all your work with your sports uh, turf center down there in Tennessee. And I want to give you a chance to talk about it. But now it's football season. Everybody's thinking about this. Uh, It's always good to sort of educate people on what are we doing in, in sports turf management with regard to uh, safety and performance. And you've, you know, published a fair amount of research in this area. And I want to start out with a couple of caveats. First off, I want to make sure everybody understands a lot of the things we're talking about are overarching, independent of surface type. We want it to be a certain way. And then the data that we use to construct and predict safety and performance um, is evolving uh, dependent on a lot of factors, uh, but ultimately uh, something between the shoe and the foot and the surface. So let's start out, John. You know, you've been at this. I knew you when you were laying sod squares <laughs> in the Pontiac Silverdome back at Michigan State back in the day, right? So, you know, what's what's sort of evolved now with the way we look at these fields from the get-go? You know, it, it's evolved as, you know, education and, you know, not just parents and, you know, I say the crazy soccer mom and dad awareness, but concerns about children, but actual athletes themselves being proactive and being about their own safety and performance when it comes to the health and the diet that they have to the equipment that they use to the surfaces they play on. It all plays a factor in not just performance, but safety. So you have been working on many different things. Let's start with something simple like testing equipment. It would seem to me that we've gotten to the point where the testing equipment is giving us good measurements. What can you say when you go out there and measure a field for the variety of things? What's going on with technology and measurements right now? Yeah, right now it's rapidly changing some of the testing. You know, typically and historically, the tools that we've used, the clag hammer, the shear vane, those are testing devices for the agronomic component. So to look at how, how the field or the grass is performing are great tools for consistency and uniformity, which are factors that play into safety, mm-hmm. but they have no relevance onto the safety of an actual athlete in terms of criteria if they're falling or hitting the surface or the traction that they're getting with their feet, even that shear vein. So we've evolved a lot of that. There's basically two devices, uh, the beast that 
the University of Virginia in BioCore, and what we call is our flex device here in Knoxville, which is a mobile tester that can put different shoes and footwears, different sizes of shoes, and probably do almost 100 different conditions or different foot strikes hmm. to measure the forces being generated back on the body. And it's been calibrated and correlated against human test objects in a biomechanics lab. That's, so that's the only device that's been like that. Right. And so that, that is a big component to the way testing and the implements that give us consistent forces. But what I understood from chatting with Andy recently with regard to sort of his old mobile device, the Penfoot, and the thing the guy at the University of Virginia is using is the load that many of these athletes are putting on the foot. And so I guess it was important if you're still going to keep some mobility because it's hard to move around something that generates the forces Andy says you need and and that the guy of Virginia is using. And so I imagine that correlation is useful. Is that correlating to somewhat where non-contact lower limb injury will occur, right? Because that's ultimately what the biomechanics we hope is going to help prevent. Right. And so, yeah, we're having a hard time getting those standard tools to correlate to what's called the beast at Virginia or our flex device. So we can do the forces, you know, because like you said, those forces of a 200-pound athlete are actually doing two and a half to three times their force when they're running and making a cutting movement. So you have to be able to put the force of a 600 pounds down on that surface. And that's why we've got our, like our flex device. We have 1,200 pounds of weight that we can put on it to generate those forces. It's unbelievable. So yeah, you're right. And that torque is huge. Yeah. And, and, and that's where you're putting different shoes. And of course, athletes then have to be sort of characterized in a certain way, right? I mean, the way your foot strikes the ground may or may not determine how successful you are in, uh, you know, turning the corner around tackle or or making that cut on the on the option play where you're swinging wide and then cutting hard. I would imagine doing right. those different foot strikes is related to footwear. And John, I'm sure that's a big black hole. How much, if we started out, how much would we say is shoes, and how much would we say is surfaces? So, yeah, then the athlete on the third factor right. of that, I, you know, it's, it's hard to say it's a, you couldn't say it's 30, 30, 30 or whatever. We're learning that obviously when it comes to athlete performance and safety as it relates to the surface, there's the three factors. It's the surface type, there's the athlete, and then the footwear. And we're starting to identify, you know, it could be positional. We're doing male and female human test subject work. So it's gender. It's age. You know, there's all sorts of things, but you can look at if you're running and planting and you're rotating, say a linebacker's running and the quarterback does a sweep and they plant their foot and they rotate and they rotate their left foot outward, it puts a different strain because the studs on the outside of the cleat can cause a different reactive force if they turned inwards with that same foot. And, you know, how quickly did they turn it? How deep did they penetrate into the surface? So we're testing and starting to collect all that data as we speak right now at our Center for Athletic Field Safety to identify different footwear, different 
conditions that we say for a rotational effect on a foot that's being generated back, what happens when that foot rotates at zero, 100, 200, 300, 400, 500 milliseconds after contact on different surfaces? So I uh, visited with Andy McNitt recently and went through some of the shoe evaluations that he's doing as well, where he's creating a red, yellow, green chart for these shoes. And he's saying, you know, this is more likely what a youth athlete or a high school athlete, maybe a young collegiate athlete, based on the pressures and things that they're doing with the pen foot. This is a good assessment him and Tom are doing down there. And I'm sure you're doing equally as diligent. And of course, likely the correlation with the things in the lab are very useful. But at the end of the day, do we have standards set for saying this shoe isn't safe? This shoe is this field isn't safe. This field is no, there's there's no standards as we speak yet. The only thing that's out there is the beast test for NFL shoes that they they suggest are not worn by players on artificial turf because they provide too much traction, which generates too much force on the body and could potentially be injurious. So, you know, that's an interesting dilemma itself because one of the things that Andy said, and I'm sure you feel exactly the same way, the shoe is now a piece of safety equipment. Yeah, it, it should be considered a piece of equipment and safety equipment like a helmet. Right. And they're, you know, the designer shoes and the way they change their shoes they're sometimes making decisions and now they're going to be informed about it. So what happens when the athlete starts to get this information now on the shoes, on the surfaces? Now, of course, there's multi-levels to this. Obviously, parents want to know for their youth what's likely to you know, help them with safety issues. But a high-performance right. athlete is looking for, where, where's that line? Where's that line? Well, yeah. And that's that's an excellent point because there there was an example of a of an NFL player, and I'm not sure if if he was wearing that, but he he was wearing one of the shoes that was on the non-suggested list because it can only be suggested because they're professional athletes and they can do what they want with that aspect. And he caught a touchdown in the end zone, but rolled his ankle because he caught his ankle on the artificial turf and missed the next three or four games afterwards. But the mentality was, hey, if I have this shoe, this particular cleat, I might have better performance, mm-hmm. and that's going to give me a half step on the corner that's covering me, and I get that touchdown. That's my payday. Mm-hmm. Well, this is right. Now, one of my arguments recently is the, you know, the advent of all this testing and all this equipment is very much driven by the potential for future litigation. If I would imagine a, a sport had a playing environment or a workplace area where they had some information that suggests that either it wasn't safe or the way the athletes are prepared for it wasn't safe. That then opens up a fair amount of litigation. Where is this whole testing story, John, right now with what you think is future litigation about now that we know long-term play on synthetic surfaces from the NFL work, from Andy and the guys in Virginia and all those other guys work, showing they're more likely to get this lower extremity damage. What is this all leading to? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, when the U.S. has 5% of the world's population, 95% of the world's lawyers, there's going to be litigation. (laughs) But there's a lot of things that were raised with the concussions and the players against the league, the PA, and, and, you know, they had their suits and all of these things. But one of the good things that came out about all that was it brought the two sides together. You see the new helmets that are in the NFL that they're now mandatory, mm-hmm. but it's a joint NFL, NFL PA. They understand it's a violent game. And now they're working together and saying, Hey, look at these helmets are showing to reduce concussions. Mm-hmm. 
you can't wear the older helmets because that's a safety component. Mm-hmm. It's like OSHA. You can't. You have to wear a hard hat if you're working on it, you know, or whatever. That's almost becoming a work standard. That's right. And when, when it comes to these lower extremity injuries, yeah, we're, we're in the third year of our joint NFL, NFLPA playing surface and performance committee. It's a joint committee, so we're working collaboratively. I'm working really close. Talk, we have, I have a weekly phone call with Andy and Richard Kent and the NFL game operations, NFL safety. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're talking, and, we're, and Christy Arbogast, who's another consultant for the PA, mm-hmm. out loud, and we're trying to solve these problems jointly. Good. So we know the injuries are going to occur, but what can we do to reduce them? And a lot of that is information, and a lot of that has to do with the testing and research, John. And when we come back after this message from our sponsors, we'll continue this conversation. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. I'm with John Sorokin from the University of Tennessee. We'll be right back. Golf course superintendents all agree. Traditional core aeration is time-consuming, labor-intensive, and unpopular with golfers. Dryject is a revolutionary service that relieves compaction, increases water infiltration, improves gas exchange, and amends your root zone all at the same time, leaving the turf surface smooth and immediately playable. Best of all, an independent Dryject service professional does it for you, there and gone before you know it. Dryject, the only process in the world that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass. Visit dryject.com to locate your nearest Dryject service center. Finally, a fungicide that's so much more. Civitas Turf Defense is a fungicide, insecticide, and plant protection product that will change the way you look at turf management. Civitas Turf Defense works within the plant to control diseases and pests, reducing requirements for fertilizers and other pesticides. By enhancing stress tolerance, Civitas Turf Defense can reduce water inputs by up to 25% while maintaining acceptable turf quality. Civitas also increases abiotic stress tolerance for improved tolerance to wear and traffic. And with no known resistance issues, there's no worry about maximum yearly application restrictions. Civitas Turf Defense, plant protection redefined. There's more to the story. Visit CivitasTurf.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. We're going to continue our conversation from a higher level down to actually the ground level, John. And that is the work you've done with synthetic turf, particularly with regard to temperature issues, which is certainly something we uh, expect and want to advise our coaches to want to know and, and be aware of. And then the padding issues of how things have changed with regard to infill depth and volume, padding underneath. So let's start with temperature first. Uh, obviously, on a bright sunny day in western Pennsylvania, when it's 80 degrees, I think Andy's measured upwards of 149. How how warm have you gotten? The highest we've gotten is 186 degrees Fahrenheit or 83 Celsius. Okay. So with that as a backdrop, we do have a sense that there is an unsafe level of heat associated with these things where we have to modify the use of them. Is that a fair statement? Yes. That should always be conscious. And, you know, heat stroke and player athletes going down, even on in the south on Bermuda grass, is a problem and a concern. So definitely it's compounded when you have artificial in the sun. Does it matter that you're measuring the surface temperatures and not at body height? How much does the temperature buffer 
when the athlete is upright, presumably if they don't spend a lot of time on the ground, but that makes an issue for youth sports. <laughs> My the f- yeah. five and six year old kid soccer players spend a lot of time on the ground compared to the MLS or <laughs> Premier League. So yeah. talk a little bit about that difference. Yeah. So, you know, when you think of what the temperature is around your face or your core, your body core versus what the actual surface is, there, there might be some relevance to that. But I think it's also, again, you know, it could be positional. If you're looking at a soccer field, the goalie may be more vulnerable, more susceptible because they're standing and not constantly lifting their feet on that surface. Mm. And that heat, if your feet heat up, because you can feel it, your blood's going to flow that hot, hot temperatures that your feet are encountering up to the rest of your body. So heat stroke can, is an onset. doesn't matter if it doesn't raise up to where your, your head is. Huh. If, if your feet are on it, it's going to be hot. So now you, in this paper that I was particularly interested in, which is uh, predicting these temperatures, you know, that's what we want to be able to do so you can make adaptations. So number one, talk about the work that you did, what you found, and wonder how it's actually going to ever get implemented. Yeah, so we're actually working and trying to do this with discussions with AstroTurf, um, a synthetic turf manufacturer, because they understand heat is one of the issues with artificial turf, as well as in sport. And, you know, my kid had a soccer game on Bermuda grass in August, and they stopped it every 15 minutes to give them a mandatory water break because it was 98 degrees outside. So those are concerns. So, yeah, with our research, we put data loggers and we collected the temperature, surface temperatures of 15 different artificial turf surfaces, and we collected all the weather data that was going on at the same time. And we've learned through one of my PhD students, Adam Tomes, who's now on the faculty at Iowa State, that the the green fibers are the primary contributor to the source of the heat on artificial turf. Hmm. A lot of people thought it was the black rubber infill. Hmm. It is also a source if you use a different infill, you can you can reduce the temperature if you use a, a wood wood chips or a cork potentially. Mm. But the green fibers are the main source of the heat. Hmm. That's interesting because it seems now that the reveal of these fibers, they're finding from studying the volumes that mm-hmm. you don't want a lot of that stuff revealed. I wonder, is there an issue when you start bringing, regardless of the material, closer to the surface for safety reasons, or just say you're not maintaining it and it gets like right. that. Does that change your conclusion? So, yeah, it, as a field gets worn and the infill gets tracked off, the fi- more reveal or the more fiber, exposed mm-hmm. fiber, the, the higher the temperatures can become for those surfaces, for sure. And then when you fill it back up and very little of the fiber is exposed, but a lot of the rubber is there, does it get warmer being black? No, it's actually cooler than it was if it had all the green fibers. No kidding. No, we're, we're looking at subtle temperature differences of, of 140 down to 130 maybe, or 133, oh, okay. so 7 to 10 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay. But that's, you know, any any little bit makes a difference when you right. get to those but temperatures. Has, you think it's getting, are any of these things getting themselves down to safer levels what and i guess that's the question i thought i heard 120 somewhere i right. heard about 120 we start getting squirrely yeah and you get 120 130 those all of a sudden the properties of those fibers the plastic in those properties start to denature a little bit and become more mandible hmm. but yeah we found slit film is cooler than monofilament by about 14 degrees which is a unique just by the property of that we've we've done some infills you know the cork but it washes and it floats away very easily. <laughs> so, you know, those are things, but they can lower the temperature significantly. We've done one called, it's a Brockville, and it's like southern Georgia pine wood, little chunks, and 
that has lowered it by about 25, 30 degrees. So we had, you know, 160 degrees on a conventional field, and it was only 130 on, on that field. Okay. So that, that is showing some promise for sure. So let's shift for a minute to the natural surfaces, which, as you indicated, also get very hot when it's 105 degrees out. So athletes still need to make some adjustments. But you've done a fair amount with natural surfaces. And what I thought was fascinating, Andy was saying, is that the synthetic turf industry, both funding you guys to a certain extent and Andy to a certain extent, you know, they're very interested in what what are the properties of natural turf that make their system problematic with regard to these lower extremity injuries. And Andy talked a little bit about divoting, but what we didn't get into, and I want to get into with you because you've done a fair amount of the varietal stuff. You published a paper a while ago about Bermuda grass varietal differences. Let's, let's start with bigger than that. How different are the cool season and the warm season? Let's compare a, you know, really good bluegrass field uh, with a really good Bermuda grass field. Do you have any reason to think that one is more or less safe or different than the other? Well, you know, when we run our flex tester over it, what we've concluded is the safest surface you can play on is 100% Kentucky bluegrass. Um, This is comparing bluegrass versus Bermuda grass versus synthetic. Mm -hmm. But the biggest challenge is is maintaining 100% Kentucky bluegrass, right? It's Mm -hmm. it's a grass that's going to wear faster than Bermuda grass and obviously wear faster than synthetic turf. But it has that nature to break away a lot easier. It doesn't have the forces when a player is running and cutting to grab the body and translate that energy to the knees and the ankles as much. So it's going to divot. Okay, so so you have this information. Let's go back for a second to what we were talking about earlier. You have this information. You have information on shoes. What's to stop the athlete from knowing that and adding a thicker cleat to compensate for that shifting then? Yeah, well, they do. And you can look at the European soccer players, for instance. They're probably the biggest example. They're playing because bluegrass or ryegrass, they're playing on a cool season soccer pitch, and they're wearing the the screw-in longer cleats, studded cleats, Mm. versus if they're playing on a Bermuda grass field in southern Spain, they're they're wearing molded cleats with the 13 studs, and they're shorter. Mm. So they do that, and there's some neat studies out of Australia that show when you wear those longer screwing cleats, you're going to get a higher incidence of ACL injuries That's if right. you happen to wear those on a Bermuda grass field. That's right. That that was when uh, Chivers and Phil Ford and all that stuff, John Nealon, all that stuff was going yep. on down there. When, John Orchard, they said, yeah. Yeah, yeah, when they said that, you know, Bermuda grass was a little more likely to cause injury than, than ryegrass, and it actually is interesting. So let's parse that out for a second. Does a 100% ryegrass field, where does that fall? Because, you know, it doesn't produce the rhizomatous growth that you right. get with uh, with a bluegrass. Does that rhizomatous growth or that rhizomatous stoloniferous growth, I would imagine, with Bermuda, is what's really giving it that traction? Right. That's, yeah, we haven't tested it compared to 100% ryegrass, but with the Kentucky bluegrass, yeah, that's you get that tensile strength or that increased knitting for sure, from the rhizomes and stolons, the aggressive rhizomes and stolons of Bermuda grass, I think that's more mesh, more area to provide grab for the cleats. And they still break away at forces. They'll still divot when the force is too high. Okay. That's the nice thing about natural grass. All right. So, so that, and again, that seems to me to be what 
the chase is on for because mm -hmm. because natural grass surfaces in these high event load facilities where they got event after event after event after event that they that the, even with the lay and play sod it's it's going to get very difficult so let me ask you about that for a second andy's got his uh, instant play i know you have some technology for quick grass sod how do you see that technology uh, improving and expanding uh, into not just high-end athletics, but into uh, scholastic athletics? Yeah, so the, the lay-and-play carpeted systems, I think, you know, they're, they're still out there and they've been around a long, long time. What's happened is the technology's caught up with those types of systems where we can come in and manage them because the, the challenge was how do you manage thatch and organic matter buildup in those systems mm -hmm. and the ability to come in and phrase mow out and, sh and shave all that stuff off and still have the fibers act like the rebar to stabilize the sand is a big benefit. We have a hard time seeing a benefit using those systems on warm season grasses. We've seen some improvement on the cool season grasses, however, rye grasses and blue grasses for sure. Huh. So those systems are pretty neat. I wasn't necessarily uh, talking about those hybrid systems like Tony uses with, does Tony have the fibers in the Not system? Not anymore. Not anymore. Okay. So here's my question. I was actually just thinking of thick cut sod that's managed in the farm and then brought out, lined out. You're yeah. actually thinking one level up. I had a feeling for a while that people had given up on the ISIS, that stitching technology. What is the status of, of that technology, John? Are you still working with it extensively? Definitely. You know, the Packers put in what's called Sisgrass in their right. stadium last year. It's a great system for, and I think Toronto FC put it in this year. And oh, that's it, right. It, it, it eliminates the backing. And now that we can do this, phrase mowing and all these different types of technologies to control the thatch and the organic matter buildup, you can maintain the integrity of that surface, but still have the benefits of those fibers stabilizing the sand below. So when it is raining, it's going to drain, but you're not going to have big divots or blowouts occurring either because those fibers are preventing that. Does this have a lifespan relative to how much you can phrase mow it and continue to rejuvenate it? Eventually, I would imagine you must have to wear out those fibers. Yeah, those fibers over time start to lay over and they become harder to stand back up and they come back and re-add sand. So the Sisgrass technology that they use, they bundle the fibers together and instead of having a flat fiber, they're kind of corkshoe shaped. So think of rolling up a piece of paper versus folding it and how much more rigid it would be to keep it from bending down and staying bent down. Oh, it's so fascinating. Listen, John, let's take another break and we'll come back and wrap up our conversation. I'm with Professor John Sorokin at the University of Tennessee. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. We'll be right back. Finally, a fungicide that's so much more. Civitas Turf Defense is a fungicide, insecticide, and plant protection product that will change the way you look at turf management. Civitas Turf Defense works within the plant to control diseases and pests, reducing requirements for fertilizers and other pesticides. By enhancing stress tolerance, Civitas Turf Defense can reduce water inputs by up to 25% while maintaining acceptable turf quality. Civitas also increases abiotic stress tolerance for improved tolerance to wear in traffic. And with no known resistance issues, there's no worry about maximum yearly application restrictions. Civitas Turf Defense, plant protection redefined. There's more to the story. Visit CivitasTurf.com. Golf Corps superintendents all agree, traditional core aeration is time-consuming 
labor-intensive, and unpopular with golfers. Dryject is a revolutionary service that relieves compaction, increases water infiltration, improves gas exchange, and amends your root zone all at the same time, leaving the turf surface smooth and immediately playable. Best of all, an independent Dryject service professional does it for you, there and gone before you know it. Dryject, the only process in the world that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass. Visit dryject.com to locate your nearest Dryject service center. All right, welcome back to Frankly Speaking. John, we'll wrap up our conversation bringing some of these things together. And before we leave natural grass, the other part of your research that's really fascinating for people to understand is the role that moisture plays uh, in the variance of that system. And so I'll ask you, you know, do you sometimes see fields that are so wet, even though they're soft, that obviously you, you don't want to play on them? And sometimes at the other end, they're too dry and too hard and you don't want to play on those either. And do we know what the sweet spot is? Yeah, well, we've identified it for the most part for warm season grasses, and I think you could translate it to cool season grasses. But we did a study, and we've got it published, both of them in crop science, looking at different moisture levels for Bermuda grass wear tolerance for football on a native silt loam soil and a sand-based field. So when you look at a, a sand-based root zone, we actually did, that's you know one of the joys or benefits of having a sand-based root zone is it didn't matter what moisture regime we had, it didn't affect the wear tolerance. Huh. However, when we kept a Bermuda grass field on the really dry end of wilt on a native silt loam soil versus higher water contents where, you know, it's saturated or at field capacity, we saw significant differences in wear tolerance. So it affects wear tolerance, but also footing, right? And there's plenty of times when you see a football game, I've seen them even in college, synthetic and natural where it's rained so much it's starting to puddle what happens when it gets really saturated like that should they stop those games well you know i think it becomes a sloppy game and maybe there's more slipping and falling but i i guess i correlate that back to hockey there's a reason why nhl players have way less acl injuries than football or soccer players is because their legs slide on that ice so the performance is, is compromised but i don't know that the safety would, would ultimately be compromised. It's just not as, I guess, entertaining or high-level sport when it's in those conditions. And, and there's, there's just no way to compensate for moisture issues, even with length of cleat. Yeah, to an extent. Yeah, you're just going to start causing shearing. Well, unless you, that's where you get away with having a stand-based root zone. You shouldn't have as much of that slippage and that wear of the grass. So when you then stitch the cyst grass, when, when you put the cyst grass in and you're improving yep. that surface strength, is that mm-hmm. getting closer to giving you the issues that synthetic turf seems to have with the lack of give? We didn't get numbers that high that got us to the, the natural grass. But what we did find with the, because we have bluegrass stitched with the cyst grass, so it's what they have in Green Bay or what they have in Toronto. And what we did find is it gave us actually performance and wear, like rotational strength of, of Bermuda grass, closer to Bermuda grass. Huh. On a bluegrass field. On a bluegrass field. With yeah. the cyst turf in there. 
Right. Huh. It's so interesting. Now, listen, I want to I, w- I wanted to get to synthetic turf stuff, but I have one more note here about some of the work you've done over the years on traffic tolerance of weeds and different grasses. And since we've talked about it and since I'm hoping superintendents are listening to this and maybe getting a chance at some point to work in their local community to help the local school district or maybe a university or a municipality could use some expertise in, in professional playing service surface management. What about a weedy field? At the lower levels, you know, like I know, a lot of communities, especially in rural areas, just don't have the resources for sand-based fields, never mind synthetic fields, even if they can. But what about these weedy fields? Do you get worried when you've got a a tall fescue field with, you know, covered in clover and crabgrass this time of year? Very much so. And, you know, as as a researcher and a soccer parent, both of my concerns are for my children playing on those surfaces, and I think that's where we all got to be on the same, same, going in the same direction. We we got to look at what's what's safe and what's best for the children that are playing on them. And you know that that hit me about twelve years ago when I was in Guelph, Ontario, and I saw you know that they're not allowed to spray anything, so that's right. why they have weedy fields. And I looked at a soccer field in October, and they'd had a frost, so about sixty percent of it was dead because it was crabgrass. Mm-hmm. The rest of it was either clover or in one corner where it had really good bluegrass and ryegrass, it looked like it had been rototilled because the skunks came out of the woods to get the grubs. And I, and I looked at this field and thought, there's no way I would want my children to play on that surface because it's inconsistent, it's not safe, because it's not a uniform grass. And so when the kids are playing on it without that uniform surface that, you know, you'd like to think is relatively easy to do in Guelph with, with, you know, Mm -hmm. it's not like they got enormous pressure, but certainly crabgrass is going to be one of those things. Obviously dense turf would solve that problem. Where are you on this issue? You know why they're like that, right? Because they got banned. And you know that the conversation, especially in my neck of the woods, maybe not as much in your neck of the woods, but on either coast of this country, I can tell you those conversations are going on. And you, I'm sure you've also seen the dislodgeable residue stuff that the guys, I think McElroy or, or McCurdy have looked at the resolubilization of the compounds after they're sprayed sometimes. Where are yeah. you at with balancing what you know when you look at as an unsafe field and talking to somebody about the potential risks that using chemicals are going to create? So that's what we did to be proactive. We came back because we, we don't have those regulations in Tennessee, but myself and my colleague Jim Brosnan, our turf weeds professor, we set up a study where we compared the wear tolerance of Bermuda grass versus clover versus crabgrass. And what we found was when we simulate a football game on those surfaces on a native soil, you lose about 2 to 4% green cover on Bermuda grass on the highest wear area you lose about 12 to 14% cover on crabgrass or clover under that same wear level. Is that enough to compromise the safety of that field and the athlete? Yeah, definitely, because what we found was, let's say it's a high school and you have a JV game on Thursday and a high school, then the varsity game on Friday, you've just lost 25% of the cover. Now you compound that with rain, now it's the equivalent of having four and a half games on a wet field versus one game. You've just wiped out that field for the whole year. When it dries out, what we found was the surface hardness was up almost three to four fold at some points. So it 
kid could fall, break a collarbone more likely, or it's above that 100 number that the NFL would even come near allowing. You know, what's interesting is, and, and, and it's another sort of existential question, there's so much concern about synthetic turf, and, and yet we see them being put in, particularly at the high school level, the way money's allotted, it sometimes it's easier to pay a capital expense than an operational expense for a field, and maybe they're not going to bite the bullet and, and get a sand field. But you've just described probably what a lot of native soil fields are like at a lot of levels, and you don't see the outcry for safety in those situations, yet you see it on the synthetic surfaces. And I'm wondering what your feelings are about those two things. Obviously, you've just defined when a natural grass field is unsafe, and then you've got that anomaly of uh, cancer up in the Pacific Northwest. Some could debate the MRSA thing. Where are you at in balancing this out? I'm sure people put you on the spot for this sometimes. I definitely, I get asked those a lot. And, you know, that's, that's the whole point is how do we disseminate the information we've learned when a school can have a capital project? And I, I'm on the education and research board for the Turf Producers International. If a school's got a million dollars to put in an artificial field and it's only going to last eight years, you can't tell me you, you could be, couldn't be Tuckahoe sod and you couldn't put in you know, tuck the whole Kentucky bluegrass into that high school for a million dollars and guarantee that it's going to be at 80% or higher green cover for the next eight years because you could come in and resod it as it gets warm. That's right. So, you know, there's, there's, there's different ways to start looking at things maybe. You know, the MRSA, that got put to rest a long time ago. It actually lives longer on natural grass than it does on artificial. Okay. And it's the equipment and the hygiene. Make sure the kids go properly shower. Give them a soap on the rope after their practice and right. go shower. Right. MRSA is everywhere, and it stays on the equipment. They're just more likely to get a strawberry patch or a rug burn on artificial that can expose them to the MRSA that's in their equipment that they're not cleaning themselves after the game. And then what about that outlier of activity up in the Pacific Northwest? That's got to be the hardest one. Yeah. So the EPA just came out with their first wave and they haven't seen any causes of increased levels or loads of cancer. My understanding there's carcinogens in the crumb rubber. If it's consumed or ingested and things like that, it's not absorbed by the blood, sweat, urine, or doesn't show up in those areas. It's passed through the body. Because it takes, what is it, 500 years for 200 years or 500, 700 years for a half-life of a tire? Right. If that's a concern, we got to be worried about the billion car tires on our streets that wash into our waterways and they're taken up by fish every day. And I have to say, John, as we wrap up, what I liked about both what Andy's doing and you're doing is you're really working to make sense of both of these systems. And, of course, you said it very well with the, you know, the athletes in mind, especially when it's our young people. And, you know, they have different requirements than than older people. And I brought up the question earlier about litigation, you know, mostly sort of sad about it. It is driving mm-hmm. a lot of this stuff. But on the other hand, it's helped sports turf managers get recognized for what they are able to do as professional uh, surface managers in this case. It's, it's way beyond just... Uh, cutting the grass. So as you sort of look out and have to say things to the community, what would you say to people in general? Listen, would you put in a sand base field and then natural grass, plan for some replacement, devote a little bit of resources, and then most importantly, get somebody who knows what they're doing? Right, exactly. Because you hire an educated field manager, that's the best place to start. You got a large complex. There's a place for an artificial field to take wear off of the natural grass fields when there's inclement weather. It's an overused field that you can't reduce how much wear. It's being used nonstop from sunup to sundown. 
you know, you can't keep grass alive mm-hmm. on, on that. So there's, there's a way to have an artificial field and a reason to have it in some instances, but we, we need to make sure that the awareness is there of the best situation and when they should be used, whether it's natural or artificial. And it's extremely important. And very little money goes into maintaining natural or artificial fields once they're in. And these are our children playing on them. And I think that's the big disconnect is we need to start leveling up, you know, what people do, because it's important for children to play sports and be active. And I tell you, what's interesting is, in general, wouldn't you say in in your travels that when you are asked to speak to communities that, in general, they say, well, when they put a rug in, it's not going to require any maintenance. And now it seems like this is what you and Andy and a lot of the researchers have been doing is trying to figure out how you do maintain these things. What are the things that matter, such as uh, crumb rubber volume or padding or things like yeah. that? So isn't that a common misconception that there's no maintenance? Exactly. And that's, well, that's how they were sold. And now we know that they need maintenance and you know, and it's not like you have to go main, like you have to mow your, your natural grass field. You have to mow the entire field. But if it's, you know, after every single lacrosse practice, you know, just like a baseball team, baseball teams in high school look after the diamond and do all the work themselves. Yeah. That should be implemented to artificial fields. All right. It's a lacrosse practice. The goalie's got to go back and fix that goal mouth because that's the worst wear of any sport. That's right. And they need to go brush up that and re-infill the rubber and make sure it's standing up and it's safe again. That's correct. After every practice. John, thank you so much for sharing this time with us and helping us understand the complexities of field and player surface interactions. John Sorokin is a distinguished professor of turfgrass science at the University of Tennessee, a member of the NFL Field Certification Committee, and recipient of the 2011 William Daniels Award from the Sports Turf Managers Association, their highest honor for academics. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at DryJack, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass, and Intelligrow, makers of Civitas, a fungicide that's so much more. Frankly Speaking is recorded and produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, New York by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to Program Manager Eleanor Geddes, Marketing and Business Management John Kiger, and Executive Producer Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me. This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, <sighs> smell the difference? Hefty Ultra Strong has Arm & Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash... Hmm. You can stay one step ahead of Stinky. And for bigger jobs, try the superior strength of hefty large black bags. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.